Okay, so what do you do with this abundance of uh, riches? How do we marshal the evidence to arrive at what the Apostle wrote uh, with certainty, the evidence of these uh, texts? Now, marshalling the evidence is the job of what we call textual criticism, uh, which, is, which allows us to arrive with a high degree of certainty at the original text, and it can be practised and it's not just practiced in the New Testament or the Old Testament, it's practiced with any ancient document, but it can be practiced well uh, because of the large number of texts. Now, textual criticism involves studying the making and transmission of the original documents, we've touched on that, then their collection, description and classification, as you see, of those existing witnesses, and then finally the selection from the variant readings amongst those witnesses of the one most likely to be original. And so textual criticism is not involved in reinventing the, reinventing the original, is not involved in making stuff up. It's actually involved in discarding the spurious, uh, trying to uh, get at uh, the goal. And textual criticism is actually a very public work. Not only now can you go online and see or see all the manuscripts if you wish. Uh, any critical edition of the Greek New Testament uh, includes the variant readings and there are basically two forms of the uh, critical text. One is what's called the Nestle-Allen text and the other is uh, the United Bible Society text. Now they now publish the same text. There might be variations in punctuation, because remember punctuation is not in the original, so there's, it's an interpretive issue. Uh, where, how they differ is in how they list the textual variants. Uh, so uh, the UBS text, this is stupid isn't it, holding it up to the microphone, as you can see right. Uh, but the UBS text actually writes out the variants and the manuscripts that support them and then it evaluates them. It's, it's a great, but it does fewer uh, than the Nestle Allen text. The Nestle Allen has a slightly more difficult uh, textual apparatus to master, but it contains far more texts. Uh, far more, but it's actually public. You can go, you can buy one of these. Uh, it, 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 it's available for all. Uh, to see uh, because the editors actually don't think they do the final job. So it's actually up to interpreters to actually re-examine the evidence and decide whether that's the text they agree with or not when they're, they're looking at it. Anyhow, uh, now what's the process of recovering the autographic text? What do they use? So how's the evidence marshal? Well, this is an example. Uh, this is kind of bringing out of the footnotes onto a page uh, the variants in Luke 23:34, and with each variant, and you notice that uh, actually the variants amongst those that don't omit the verse, some texts actually omit this verse, uh, are actually very minor. So it's the addition of pater or uh, changing the spelling of poyus in things like that. They're actually very minor. So that's the degree to which they go. They list actually really minor differences, any differences, even if it's just a difference in a letter uh, uh, they list. So they put them there and then they decide which of those they think is uh, kind of the original. Now what principles do they use uh, to help them decide? And again, this is public information. So the United Bible Society, uh, with their publication of text, publishes a textual, a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. And this is where they list all the variants and they give their reasons for which variant they chose and why they didn't choose the others. And at the introduction uh, to that, it gives the principles which textual critics employ in making their choices. I'll just run through them. So uh, firstly, they look at what's called external evidence and internal evidence. And so uh, the external evidence is basically four things. So the date and character of the witnesses. So that's the date and the character of the text type it embodies. 
Uh, and the older witnesses are preferred because they're more likely to be free from an accumulation of errors as it's copied and recopied and copied. And they also, by character, look at whether this copyist was conscientious. Is there actual signs or has somebody else corrected him lots of times? Because that would happen in a monastery too. Uh, then they look at the geographical distribution of the witnesses, how widespread, because early Christianity spread very quickly. So Jerusalem, you rapidly got centres in Alexandria and Egypt, Antioch in Syria, oh, Ephesus in Asia Minor, but rapidly spread uh, to uh, the west, to Rome, Lyon, uh, uh, and also through North Africa. And of course people going took their texts with them. Now, uh, the more widespread a text is, the more likely it is to be ancient. That is, it started early in the spread and it, and it got taken with people. So, so look for geographic distribution of, uh, of, of the readings. And uh, the older, yeah. Uh, and so something that comes from a number of different regions uh, because of the time taken to spread and the time to be accepted, used and copied, uh, is, is probably more likely to reflect the original. And then they look at what's called genealogical relationships. That's, so uh, texts have family trees, so they're copied. You know, they're copied and then they're copied and copied again. And so you try and work out, in a sense, uh, which family of texts uh, it belongs to. Because, and this is key principle, witnesses are to be weighed, not counted. You're looking for the number of independent witnesses for a reading, not just the number of witnesses. Now let me illustrate, okay? So here, this is our we and you, let's just say. Now you look at the slide, look at the bottom line, how many witnesses to the original do you have? Right, yeah, you see, you actually have four witnesses to the original and three of them read we. So we is more likely to be the original reading. Okay, this is, this is simplified because sometimes there's text. So not just counted, but wait, let me, okay, let me, let, let me, uh, okay, let me look at this one. The ones in red, Let's pretend the ones in red are actually surviving because they, you know, they're not all the same age and some. So. Now, now, the red are surviving the extant manuscripts, uh, and if you look at that, actually eight read you, and only four read we. Okay, the red ones, and yet, how many witnesses to the original? You've still got four witnesses to the original and three of them read we. Manuscripts have to be weighed, not counted. Now do you get that? Because that's actually a really important principle because there are some people who just want to add up the numbers who support a reading and say, oh, this has more numbers supporting it, it must be right. But actually it's not the case. Did you get it? You get it. Good. Excellent. Good. Let me say that is the key principle for evaluating external evidence. So you look at antiquity, you look at spread, you look at families, you weigh the value of the external evidence. Okay. And that'll become important uh, later when we look at the difference between the New King James and every other every other translation. Okay. Okay. Now there's internal evidence. And internal evidence has to do with the behaviour of scribes uh, and uh, also authors. So internal evidence looks what best explains what a scribe has written and also the author's style and context. And so that looks at the errors that we've noted above because of the volume of text, those errors become plain, they're detected. And can you explain it? You know, leaving out a line, you can do that because you know how many letters were in a line of the text. 
and you can actually reconstruct uh, the original, things like that. And here the volume of manuscripts is very helpful. And then there are things that scribes are more likely to do. And that means that generally they prefer the more difficult reading because the scribe is not likely to have generated a more difficult reading. Generally the shorter reading, because apart from things about missing out lines, scribes are far less likely to take away information than to add it. Uh, you look at parallel passages and the tendency to harmonisation and you usually prefer the less refined reading because scribes are always tempted to polish up the Greek because that's their job, you know, they, they're scribes. Right, and then you look at author's style and vocabulary. So to practice textual criticism, you really have to know your Bibles. You know, the kind of vocabulary the author have, the kind of way he organises his information. Now what do we do, what do we get through this wealth of texts? And it is, think, over 5,000 of the Greek texts and the employment of the textual criticism. You, you get basically a certain autographic text with what Wenham calls an uncertainty fringe. And we'll think about what's those, uh, what, what that means. Uh, what we actually get is, yes, textual variance, but actually not many and most are minor. Now think about the size of the New Testament. The UBS text has 1,400 uh, textual variants mentioned in, uh, in its apparatus and a further 600 mentioned in uh, the textual commentary. But most of those are minor. Uh, let me say one is the difference whether you say rabbi once or twice, things like that, in Matthew 23. Or uh, things like, uh, like uh, this. You know, the RSV, to get a measure, had 235 footnotes in the New Testament listing variants. That's out of the complete New Testament, which is actually quite a large book. 235, they thought, significant enough to comment on. I haven't counted the ESV, but again, most of their footnotes are trivial. So you see the difference there? In a short time, you persuade me to be a Christian the variant is, in a short time, you would persuade me to act like a Christian. There's actually very little difference in sense uh, between uh, those two. Or again, this is that 1 John 4, 1 John 1. Uh, you, your or our is actually the variant. Again, very little change in sense. In fact, Wenham has observed that by... The standards textual critics employ, you know, looking at, you know, just a difference in one letter or things like that, there are actually greater differences between two English translations than between the two most dissimilar Greek texts. And yet you always get the sense out of the English translation, right? No doctrine hangs on any of these variants or is put in doubt by any text. And so the doctrinal statements of the Reformation are still as true and supported by our New Testament as was theirs. And the early textual critics uh, like Bengal or Gaussen, you know, Bengal spoke of his pious wonder and gratitude at the preservation of the text, or Gaussen, who was a Swiss evangelical, said, this immense toil has ended in a result wonderful by its insignificance and uh, imposing by its nullity. In fact, the far greater, once you've done all this work, it actually makes you realise the far greater work is understanding what's written, not what's written. But there are areas of controversy, and you'll see in your notes, that Wenham looks at five in the Gospels, Mark 16, John 7, and there are other things like, you know, 1 John 5. Now, what do we say? Let's, let's take... Uh, let's take... Um, Let's, says, let's take Mark 16 as an example. Uh, most of you will know that you, you're reading along and you get to the end of Mark and, uh, you know, you, you, you get there and if you're reading basically anything except the King James, uh, it kind of stops. And then, you know, people have verses 9 to 20 in a footnote, the Good News Bible has an old ending. Some manuscripts and ancient translations don't have this ending. Or another old ending, the Jerusalem Bible, just a footnote, uh, has a footnote, verses 9 to 20 are in the text. 
the New English Bible, a series of footnotes. The NIV has a line at the end of verse 8 and then says the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses don't have these verses. So uh, why, why uh, does the uh, King James Version have verses 9 to 20 without hesitation? And why do the others make comments as they do and separate it off? And so this is a good time to talk about the King James Version and the text that lies behind it. And if you're looking for a good book, if this is an issue for you or some people you know, um, Don Carson has written a book called The King James Version Debate, and I forgot to put it in the bibliography. Don Carson, King James Version Debate. Right. Uh, uh, behind the King James Version, which has itself been altered over time, did you know that? There are a number of actually different editions that came out in the 1700s, lies the Greek text called the Textus Receptus, uh, which is a phrase, it's kind of a marketing blurb uh, from uh, one of the printers of uh, the Greek text. You know, the Greek text received everywhere. Now, where did this text come from and what authority does it have? Now, uh, the story of the Textus Receptus uh, starts with a bloke called Erasmus, who was a humanist scholar, you know, just uh, before uh, the, the Reformation. Okay, so uh, he is under pressure. Uh, there's, there's actually a competition going on to see who can bring out the first Greek edition of the Greek New Testament. The Spaniards are working on what's called the Complutensian Polyglot. They're much more ambitious bringing out other issues. And Erasmus is working away at a Greek New Testament and his printer has uh, put him under pressure, right? He wants to get this text out uh, very, very uh, soon. So uh, he, I'm looking for the, the page of the notes, he, he's beetling away and he publishes the first Greek text of the New Testament uh, in, in 1516. So it was hasty, lots of typographical errors, but a wonderful bestseller, actually, because people were just waiting for it. It was, major source was two Greek manuscripts of the 12th centuries, one of the Gospels and one of Acts and the Epistles, compared with two or three others. And uh, only had one 12th century manuscript for the book of Revelation, which was lacking the last six verses. So being an ingenious person, Erasmus translated back into Greek from the Vulgate and then uh, invented some... Greek readings that are found nowhere else. So that's interesting. Anyhow, uh, he, he keeps going along. It's just the start. He brings out another edition in 1518. And uh, it wasn't greeted with universal acclaim uh, and it was criticised. And, and one of the things it was criticised for, for those of you who are interested, is it didn't have 1 John 5, 7 to 8. That's the verse about the Trinity. It just didn't have it. And they said, why didn't you include it, Erasmus? And uh, he said, I couldn't find it in any Greek text. And then he did the foolish thing and said, you find me a Greek text with it in it and I'll put it in the next edition. And that was very foolish because lo and behold, a Greek text arrived. And this is from Metzger. So 1 John, and as you know, people think it's tied up with the Trinity, 1 John contains this... Uh, Trinitarian statement, the Father, the Word and the Holy Ghost and these three are one and there are three that bear witness in earth. That's 1 John 5, 7, 8 in the King James. Okay, well uh, such a copy was found or was made to order. It now appears that the Greek manuscript had probably been written in Oxford about 1520 by a Franciscan friar who took the disputed words from the Vulgate and Erasmus stood by his promise and published it in 1522, but he did indicate in a lengthy footnote his suspicions of the man, that the manuscript had been prepared expressly in order to confute him. And among the thousands of Greek manuscripts in the New Testament examined since the time of Erasmus, only three others are known to contain this passage. They are Gregory 88, a 12th century manuscript which has these verses written in the margin in a 16th century hand. 
uh, Tischendorf 120, which is a 16th century manuscript copy of the Complutensian polyglot, so 16th at the same time, and another one dating from the 14th century or perhaps the latter part of the 16th century. Now, this does occur in 4th century Latin manuscripts, but it's in no, apart from those four, in the thousands of Greek manuscripts, it's not in any Greek manuscripts, which is why it's omitted from all your Bibles. But anyhow, uh, coming back uh, to, unless you're reading the King James, right, coming back to uh, the story of the Textus Receptus. Anyhow, Erasmus's Greek New Testament being the very first is very influential, though it's built on very slender uh, textual evidence. Six minuscule manuscripts, the oldest being the 10th century, which he actually used least because of alleged errors in the text. But subsequent editors, though making a number of alterations in Erasmus's text, essentially produced this uh, because it had kind of won the market. And the, the, the way you get to the King James Version is first through Stephanus and then through a bloke called Beza, uh, because printers were very entrepreneurial. This was a great seller, so they're always bringing out new editions, especially if you had a little bit more uh, Greek text. So Stephanus, 1551, had 14 Greek codexes, 14 out of thousands, of but included a significant one, which is called uh, D Codex Beza. And then Beza, who was a, himself a great scholar, brought out nine editions of the Greek text, Though they differed little from Stephanus's, which differed little from Erasmus's, right? And the translators of the King James Version, 1611, made use of Beza's 1588-89 and 1598 editions. And so the text Receptus, which is at the base of the King James Version, just has very, very few Greek manuscripts to support it, and they're all late. And what's happened since the translation of the King James Version is you have had this explosion of Greek manuscripts, including great manuscripts like Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, which come from the 4th century. Complete, there's Sinaiticus, complete copy of the New Testament. They were just not available. Not available to Erasmus, not available to Stephanus, not available to Beza. They have been accumulated, they started being accumulated through the 1700s, explosion of texts uh, through the 1800s as access to the East uh, became more uh, apparent. Now let me say, somebody uh, did remind me that this is significant. You know, people say, like Muslims who say the text has been corrupted. How would they know? We have texts well, from well before uh, the alleged date of the Quran. How would he know? We, we've got the textual evidence that goes way back before. Uh, anyhow, and, and it's in continuity. Anyhow, so that's what lies behind uh, the King James Version and why modern editions of the... Uh, of my modern English editions are different and omit, say, 1 John 5 and things like that because they have behind them a better... Greek text, fundamentally better Greek text. And all modern editions except the New King James use that critical text. The New King James has opted uh, to run with the Textus Receptus because it comes to us in another name called the majority text. Because what happens is those manuscripts in the Textus Receptus were available because, in a sense, they were more common. Because church life flourished in the Greek East, Constantinople, there were far more manuscripts copied there. But because it was church manuscripts in monasteries, that also became a standardised form of the Greek text and it only reflects one family. So there were a lot of them and a lot of them were preserved. So if you're just counting texts, you'll probably always go with their readings. But if you are weighing texts, if you're looking at their antiquity and their spread, you'll go with the critical text. And only the New King James has actually chosen to go with the majority text. But even that uh, has the critical apparatus and you can see the differences. And let me say, 
you know, apart from these one or two, there's so much, so much in common. So coming back to Mark 16, uh, if you are interested, uh, uh, what you have, and you can read this, is um, a series of endings uh, to Mark 16. There is no ending, it just finishes at verse 8, and the oldest manuscripts actually have that. Just finishes verse 8. Then they've got a shorter ending, uh, which is called an intermediate ending, which has got a, a few bland verses in some manuscripts. Then you've got the long ending, uh, which is verses 9 to 20. And then in one or two texts, you have the expanded long ending, uh, where they've added actually a bit more. Now, you can read about all of these, uh, but both... The variation in the textual evidence, because scribes are unlikely to have left stuff out, especially verses 9 to 20. And then the internal evidence, the way it reads, it's very clunky. Verse 8, you've got the women as the subject. Verse 9, all of a sudden Jesus is the subject and Mary's reintroduced and there's different vocabulary. Uh, as, has led textual critics to conclude, uh, and you can read the argument at length, that actually the ending's been lost. Nobody actually knows. And somebody at some stage thought they had to kind of round it off because it's very abrupt. And if you read verses 9 to 20, actually what you've got is a basically a summary of what's going on in the book of Acts with some things focused upon, which is a relief to you because it doesn't mean we have to test your faith by snake handling. Okay. So, good. Some of you know that. That's good. So, so where are we? We'll take questions anytime. Uh, uh, but because of the wealth of manuscripts and the discipline of textual criticism, we can actually be confident that what we have in our uh, critical uh, Greek text is what came from the apostles' hands. So it's a wonderful providential provision in a sense that just as unbelieving criticism was getting underway, that more and more manuscripts have come to light and no doctrine was left without substantial thought or support or could be challenged on its textual foundation. I should just comment on that because some people argue that, you know, argue for the King James Version on providence. You know, God wouldn't have let his people have a less than kind of perfect text. But that, of course, is a very two-edged sword, isn't it? Because, well... Surely it's God who's responsible for the discovery of all these texts too. So you can argue from providence both ways. You should just embrace the thing. So what we've got is certainty with this uncertainty fringe and that's helpful to us because it helps us focus on what's common and plain and upon the central truths. And it teaches us, in a sense, not to argue about words, but to work from the centre outwards, basing no belief on just one verse in isolation, but reading all in the light of the testimony of the whole scripture. But reflection on the transmission of the text should also teach us its importance and the labour and care taken to bring it to us, care which we should take, and the scholarship we should support uh, to sustain the integrity of the textual tradition, uh, conscious of our responsibility to transmit the text faithfully as well. Now, I'll take questions before we start on translation. Compared to, say, the New King James, which is, which is based on majority texts, but then what is the basis of the weighing when the past is in that sense opaque? And then you say, well, but we've got this modern situation, we've got more translations, so that gives us greater depth, but we won't, we won't go with the majority version because that's just, a, that, that's just sort of quantitative versus the more analytical sort of approach. Uh, there are two things. It depends on how you weigh the external evidence, yeah. uh, and that's quite true. And all of these list all the external evidence. So you can actually make up your mind. But it comes back to this. Uh, it's actually which, how many witnesses do we have to the original text? And so once you think that texts have family trees and that they reflect, in a sense, uh, their forebear 
What you're actually looking for is how close can you get back to the original and how many witnesses to the original do you do that you have. So I think the principle of weighing texts is actually pretty important. And the reason the Byzantine text is so predominant is because they had peace and they had government support. You lived in North Africa in the 5th century and you were being ravaged by the Vandals. Uh, but you lived in uh, the east, say in Alexandria, uh, and uh, what happened was the east suffered more under the persecution of Diocletian and they were burning texts. So, so a lot does depend on where you lived and where the text found its home. So yeah, so, so, that's, so that's why. So it's antiquity, geographical spread, character, but also working out family relationships. So just as a follow-up question. So with the, the stuff on the left, just be, it's more about the connectivity going back versus the quantity on the right, and you've got that connection. Yeah, it, well, well, it's actually saying uh, it's... Because you... Uh, the text reflects the text you're copied from. And so when you're faced with these different readings, you think, can I, do I know the lineage of this text type? And if you can work out the lineage of the text type, you can actually, in a sense, work out what is the antiquity of the text reflected in that text type. And that's why it's important. Yeah. Yes, Rhi? Thank you. Um, I actually had a question, but you answered the question. Um, uh, but I have two comments to make. Um, uh, one is um, a reference to what you said about uh, about the corruption of the Bible in uh, in Muslims' view. Uh, it's funny enough that uh, when when actually Muslims want to show that the Bible is corrupted, they don't use the Quran because the Quran does not support the concept of the corruption of the Bible. They actually use the Bible to show that the Bible is corrupted. So this, I just wanted to make this point clear. There's no, there is no uh, doctrine in the Quran that says, actually it's the other way, because the, the Quran declares the gospel that has been revealed to Jesus and the Torah that has been revealed to Moses. And in both the Torah and the gospel, there is light and guidance. So no one can argue that this is the corruption that came actually, the, 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 the Quran states the Bible is corrupt, but it's the Bible itself that they use. Uh, the other thing is that you mentioned the, um, uh, uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus, um, um, isn't true that uh, this has been challenged by the Simonites, uh, that uh, who actually claimed that he is the one who wrote the, Sinatic, the Codex Sinaiticus? Sorry? Uh, the, uh, the, you mentioned the... Uh, yeah, Codex uh, Sinaiticus and yeah. Tischendorf. Tischendorf, that's right. But this has been challenged by the Simonites, that, uh, who actually said that uh, I by, was there. By who? Simonites. Simonites. That's in, in, uh, that, that's, uh, in the 18th century. The Simonites challenged uh, Tischendorf that saying that uh, they are the ones who actually uh, uh, wrote the Codex Sinaiticus. So there's some question marks on the, on the, on the reliability of it. No, no, the Codex Sinaiticus is brilliant. It's old, it contains not just... Uh, so I'm not entirely sure who you're talking about. I'm not sure who the Simonites? Simonites, that's right, yeah. Who are they? Um, he's a British, British, uh, uh, British man, a British theologian, uh, who actually challenged uh, Tischendorf, uh, saying that... Because, she's, you know, as you mentioned, at, at, uh, uh, Tischendorf mentioned that uh, he found that the, the, the monks were burning or mm. were using some of the manuscripts, actually. Uh, this was highly challenging, and it, it was published in, in, in few journals, few theological journals. I can give you the references for them, that this is not, this is not true. Uh, uh, he actually made it up, Tischendorf made it up, that the, uh, that the uh, uh, Codex Sinaiticus is uh, from 4th century. It, it wasn't. That, that, that concept wasn't challenged. No, no. The dating of the manuscript is not by Tischendorf. He doesn't just pull it up. You actually... Um, uh, it's paleography, so you look at the 
the kind of the text type, you look at the material it's on, uh, you can actually even do carbon dating of a small fragment. So the dating to the 4th century doesn't depend on Tischendorf pulling it out of the air. Uh, it's a good, reliable date. So it, it's actually a, a brilliant manuscript, and which we have. Uh, it's in the British Museum. Its dating is actually quite secure. Okay. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, I, I can actually give you the uh, the journals that published um, the challenge. That challenge. Uh, yeah, no uh, doubt it will be challenged, but mm. the date doesn't depend upon uh, Tischendorf's surmise. It's actually a public document, and anybody, if they're qualified, can go to the British Museum. And lots of other people have been have worked on it since. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Good. Last question, then I'm going to get cracking with translation. Yes, Neil, could you please um, explain the dating of the manuscripts? Can you uh, say a bit more about that in terms of the writing styles and things associated with the dating? Uh, probably not. Uh, though I can point you to uh, the chapter in um, Metzger. But, there, but writing styles and materials change over time. And so if you get enough which can be dated, and this is why I say uh, the evidence of the church fathers is actually important because it tells you when certain texts are being used and things like that quoted. But, but you actually look at the material and you look at the, uh, the handwriting style and that allows you to date. And sometimes there are external things that allow you to date it too in the spread. Yeah. Good. Let's look at translation. Uh, let's see how we go here. Ah, yes. Yep. Okay, what's involved in translating from one language to another? Is exact equivalence possible? So translation involves conveying the meaning of what it said, this is a slide, or written in one language into another uh, language, the receptor language, so that a speaker of the other language can understand what's been said or written and can hear the message. Now, on one hand, it's an activity that goes on all the time in our world, in our society, even in our congregation, uh, moderately effectively. So with the Iranians, we are sometimes translating things. But the more significant the communication, the more care needs to go into the translation. For example, Safe Church Guidelines into Farsi. We had to have an accredited translator, someone known to be qualified by facility in both Farsi and English to translate those guidelines. And when a text is rich and multi-layered like the Bible and has a formal context as well as a personal, there's great care needed and great care taken. And yet, with all that care, we all know that there are many different English translations. Why? Now that has to do with both general issues in translating from one language to another and the goal or purpose of the translators, you know, their target audience, the vocabulary level they're aiming for, the translation philosophy they adopt, and changes over time in the receptor language. So I'm going to start with the major issue, and that is there is no exact equivalence between one language and another even when they're related languages. And there is particularly no exact equivalence between English and Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and I'm going to talk mainly about English and Koine Greek, the Greek at the time of the writing of the New Testament. So there is no equivalence at the meaning of words. And by that I mean that very rarely does a word in one language have exactly the same range of meanings, let alone the emotional or associative overtones as a word in another language. So words have a range of meaning. We know that, don't we? Think of dog, right? That can be uh, an animal. You can be dogged by bad luck. It can be metaphoric. You can be dogged by the black dog. And you can use it as an abuse, term of abuse. You dog. Or bear. You can run from a bear. You can bear right. You can bear your burden and the bouncer might be bearing down on you. Do you put your money in the bank or slide on it? Now, that's true for Greek. Just a couple of examples. Pneuma, the word can mean wind, breath or spirit. Sarx, the word for flesh. 
The standard lexicon gives five major senses with six sub-senses. Or if you look at Fee's book, uh, Poeo, he has a long list of all these different senses. So when translating, say, bear into another language, the translator will have to specify what sense of bear is meant and choose from the receptor language uh, a word that makes sense. And it's very unlikely that the receptor language is going to have a word that means both the frightening omnivore that you are running from and the carrying of a load, which is slowing you down as you run from the said omnivore, right? And now that's true going from Greek into English. The translator will have to choose the sense. Sometimes he can solve it by a footnote. So John 3, the word spirit is pneuma, the word wind is pneuma. So I, tell, I say to you, unless one is born of water and pneuma, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of pneuma is pneuma. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The pneuma blows where it wishes. So the Greek reader gets the association. It flows. You'll only get it if you look at the footnote. But it's not a wrong translation. It's a completely right translation. Because, you know, you lose the illustration if you say the spirit blows where it wills. It's, it's, it's an illustration of the sovereignty, in a sense, of the, the spirit. But there is some loss of association. At other times in translation, that desire to specify will lose ambiguity. We'll look at that John 5, uh, where it speaks about, many versions talk about it, somebody, the sick person being healed, and the word is actually sozo, for save, and that can imply the sense of wholeness that is associated with being saved, sometimes healed, but can be saved. But they specify, and you lose. And uh, sometimes it results in increased uh, explicitness. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes concerning spirituals. And that could be spiritual things or spiritual people, but most translations just specify spiritual gifts and you lose the option. Uh, it's just a feature of the language. There's differences in grammar between languages, you know, the role of the Greek genitive. A verbal form, English has a tense-based system, a time-based system, but the Greek verbal system is as, what they say aspectual, indicating a kind of action, uh, or at least how the speaker conceives the action, whether it's ongoing or whether it started in the past and continues, or whether he's just thinking of it generally without relation to extension. We don't have an aorist. Uh, Greek has no indefinite article, A, which is very useful, but it just doesn't have it. It has other ways of indicating indefiniteness, but the, you have to choose. And Greek has greater use of the passive than modern English. They're just illustrations, so no exact equivalence in the meaning of words, no exact equivalence in grammar. There's differences in sentence and clause structure. So English uses word order to indicate the relationship of elements in the sentences, and it's mandatory. We become, if things become confusing if we swap words around in our sentences. But Greek doesn't. It's far less significant because Greek is what's called an inflected language. It indicates the relationship of a word to other words in the sentence by changes to the words itself. So a classic example is John 1, 1, well, John 1, 1C, right? And it, English has the word became flesh. And that would be quite different if... If, 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 if we had flesh became the word, right? Oh, no, sorry, no, John, what am I talking about? It has actually, uh, sorry, the word was God. And, uh, and it would be quite different if we said God was the word, right? Uh, but in Greek, it's actually the other way around. It's theos ein hologos. You actually have what we might think as um, uh, what you call the predicate, it's not an accusative, but anyhow. Uh, before the verb, in fact, uh, you have it before the verb. We can't do that without changing the sense in English, but it actually makes perfect sense in Greek. So, so word, word order is far less uh, an issue in, uh, in Greek, so, so sentences are different. And Greek also has a lot of subordinating constructions in the development of sentences and clauses. And so famously, uh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is one sentence. Um, and it's a long sentence. Lots of subordinating clauses. Uh, 
so, so there's no exact equivalence and and translation, because of that thing about word order, can actually introduce ambiguity that's never there in Greek because of uh, those inflections. And then there's the whole question of punctuation, which is significant in modern English, but just not present in the earliest manuscripts. In Romans 9.5, God who is overall blessed forever is an issue of punctuation. Uh, uh, you have to decide where it begins and ends. So word-for-word translation has never been possible. You cannot just go from one word to another word, from a word in the source language to a word in the receptor language. You've always had to translate uh, meaning. And, but then, as well as the features of... And, and that will depend upon the knowledge of Greek and the knowledge of, in this case, English, and the skill of the translator in both. But as well as features of the two languages, which will always require the translator to understand the original and then be judicious in the selection of terms in the receptor, uh, the translator also has to decide how much of the original structure she or he will preserve in their translation and adopt some principles of translation. And this is where we come to the greatest differences in modern English translations. Modern English translations... Oh, that's a great slide, isn't it? Yeah, take my word for it then. Okay, uh, Modern English translations fall along a spectrum between two poles. In this slide, called word, word for word uh, and uh, or uh, thought uh, for... I thought word for word is also what's called formal equivalence, where there's more pre preservation of the form of the original. Though it's never word for word. And thought for thought is what's called functional equivalence, or what used to be called uh, dynamic equivalence, uh, which has more freedom in changing form uh, to get the meaning across to reproduce meaning in good idiomatic English. And you you can see there is a great spread, so word-to-word, -word, N-A-S-B, uh, I don't know, E-S-B, R-S-B, round in the middle you got the kind of N-I-V, down the end, well, I call it a paraphrase, it's the message, and then the New Living Translation moving back that way. Now, each has their pros and cons, so generally the more formal translations are less readable, they seek to retain as much of the original form as possible, both in consistency of vocabulary and in structure. And they do that because they're trying to build association by verbal consistency over time for the repeated reader. So they, they like to translate, say, sarks as often as possible as flesh. So that you, when you hear flesh, you can think of those other verses where it's mentioned. It often preserves ambiguity and you have to work a little harder to get at the meaning. Uh, thought for thought, you're actually more dependent on the translator because he's translating what he or she thinks is the meaning and making more decisions about the meaning. Uh, it removes ambiguity and you lose interpretive possibility, though you get easier reading. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, I should tell you, in the bibliography, there's a book there by Gordon Fee about choosing a translation. Fee is very negative about formal equivalence. You ought to just know that when you're reading it, and very pro-functional equivalence, and very pro-inclusive language, which I'll talk about. Now, what are some of the issues? Well, part of the issue is the role of form in conveying meaning, and if you want to explore that, the book by Poitras and Grudem, pages 81 to 90, is possible. See, see uh, thought for thought at the extreme end basically says form has no role in conveying meaning. But most intelligent readers know that that's actually not the case. Form, you know, repetition of certain words, structure, convey meanings, convey resonances. Uh, so, and also there is respecting historical and cultural distance. So Fee, for example, says the best translation retains historical distance when it comes to history and culture, enabling the reader to enter the ancient world of the text, but eliminates that distance when it comes to language, using words and phrases that are clear and natural. But there's a problem with that. 
because historical difference, worldview difference, actually be reflected in language. The way they understood the world is expressed in the words they choose. And so you can actually lose, you can obscure historical and cultural difference the more you go to thought-to-thought translation. And a case in point is the way genders relate and how that's reflected in language. That is a large part of culture. And if you obscure that from the text, you're actually obscuring the difference. Okay, Uh, and finally in translation, there's also what you call recognition of the context. And this depends upon whether you think the Bible should be put in the hands of everybody and they can just read it and get everything it means like that, or which you think after the Apostle Peter said that some of the things that Paul has written are difficult to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist, and that was to readers of Greek (laughs) twist that. You think that's probably not likely to be true. Or whether you think actually the Bible is the property of the community of faith to be used in the community of faith, and that's the community of interpretation. And so in that community it brings with it understanding of, say, more complex terms like righteousness or propitiation. (coughs) So that's a feature of translation. Let me give you an example of uh, translating for impact uh, of the difference. So if you look at your sheet, there's James 5, 13 to 16. Right, now you can basically read... uh, Now look at the good news, say, right down the bottom. It's more thought to thought. And uh, verse 14, is there anyone who is sick, he should send for the church elders who will pray for him and rub olive oil on him in the name of the Lord. Uh, This prayer made in faith will heal the sick person. The Lord will restore him to health and the sins he's committed will be forgiven. Unambiguous. You got the right elders and you'll live forever. Okay? That's right, isn't it? The prayer of the elders in faith will heal you. It's an unambiguous promise. And that's so reflected in even the NIV, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. No, that's the NRSV, sorry. NIV is the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Now notice that. So whereas the good news is all about restoring to health uh, and uh, getting out of bed, uh, you know, this, at least the NIV has raised him to health, but it still has the sick person well. But if you looked at the NRSV or the RV, which is an older version, the prayer of faith shall save him that is sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Now, what's happened there is that you've lost interpretive possibility in the Good News Bible, right? Because the words are actually sozo and agero. And while sozo is translated, I think, not particularly well in some of the Gospels as heal, because it's actually a much bigger idea, and this will be your uh, evening congregation, we're preaching through James 5 at the end, but sozo occurs five times in James. The other four times refer to save, like big save. And agero, actually, yeah, it can mean getting out of bed. It actually also can mean resurrection. So one interpretive possibility is that this is a promise to the really sick people who are confined to their beds and you lie down in your bed for a few days without antibiotics, basically you'll die, okay? You'll get pneumonia and die. So you're on your way out and this is assuring them that they will be saved and raised up. That's one interpretive. The other one is something which is demonstrably not true. Demonstrably not true. That you get the right elders and every time you're sick they'll come and pray for you and you'll hop out of bed uh, if they got the right olive oil. Maybe maybe that's the difference, right? Uh, You know, so so this is actually pretty important, isn't it? So that's the difference between a a kind of thought-for-thought, you lost that possibility. Okay, versus a more formal translation. Okay, let's move on. Uh, Let's look at the other one, Genesis 1, because this will also introduce us to the vexed issue of inclusive language. This is Genesis 1, 26 to 27. 
Now, now again, um, I don't want to pick on the Good News Bible. Uh, then God said, now we will make human beings. They'll be like us and resemble us. God's into repetition. Uh, they will have power over the fish, the birds and all the animals. So God creates human beings, making them to be like himself. Uh, invites the question, in what way? Um, uh, but you um, see the REB, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. And God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. The NRSV, now good news, REB and the NRSV are all in committed to inclusive language. And what you see there is the deliberate pluralisation uh, in verse 27b, in the image of God he created them, whereas in the Hebrew text it is definitely singular. And problem with human beings, because what it actually does, uh, see the RV has a more literal rendering, Grog created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and of course man there is Adam, and it obscures the flow of the story, because you go from Adam to the creation of from the dust of Adam in chapter 2 to chapter 5 to Adam, the real person, having a real son. And the issue here is thought and inclusivity, right? Now, I think the Bible actually includes us all in Adam, a particular man, and that's kind of important because we are being saved in Christ, a particular man. It's actually a, a, a significant loss of meaning, uh, though they would say it's a, a, a clarification because Adam really means humanity. No, humanity is included in Adam, but it means a whole lot more than that. Uh, and again, you notice one of their techniques is that pluralisation uh, whereas actually it's singular to make sure because you notice it says uh, in the image of God created he him male and female created he them that is it is deliberate the inclusive term is actually Adam they're all included in Adam uh, and that's uh, deliberate so that's having having primed the pump uh, let's go on to think about uh, inclusive uh, language Right. Is inclusive language a translation principle? Now, inclusive language is uh, the attempt to remove as much masculine-tagged language as possible on the grounds that it's seen as being increasingly offensive and exclusive. So you change Adam, man, to human being so that some people don't feel excluded uh, from that uh, description. Uh, and to do to remove that, you'll employ a whole series of things. You'll you'll uh, turn into passives. You will, you know, have some someone. You will start to pluralise so that you have they. Uh, now, and you see that in our Bibles by Adelphoi becoming uh, men and brothers and sisters, and not just brothers. And there are some ways in which it does tidy things up because some. English language translations of actually older ones of imported man where there isn't, you know, and so it's good to get that out. Uh, but the issue is whether a Bible translation systematically excludes male components of meaning that are there in the original of the text. And that's what inclusive language translations or gender-neutral translations, they like to call them now, actually does, systematically exclude male components of meaning that are there in the original text, right? And uh, this is a cause of a, a large debate. So the CSV and the ESV are not inclusive language translations like that. They tidy up the language, uh, making appropriate changes. Uh, but things like the new NIV and out that way are all deliberately uh, inclusive. Now, what are the issues uh, with this? Uh, there are two issues. First of all, if you're like me, you actually think the words are inspired. So God gave us these words. There's no reason uh, to change them. 
Oh yes, some people might hear them as excluding, but the context usually makes it plain that they are inclusive and this is the way God has chosen to include humanity in Adam, in Christ. It particularly focuses around the, the masculine uh, pronoun he, uh, which is obligatory in Hebrew. Hebrew has a third masculine singular and a third feminine singular, so it's not imported into the Hebrew text. It's there, right? It's part of the signification of the words. Um, so, so the first is whether you think the words are important, and this relates to whether you think form conveys meaning as well as the actual words you choose. But here's the second issue. Uh, you see, feminism has come to the fore with the view that language shapes thought. That's why there is that drive to change our language. Language shapes thought. And you also see this uh, with uh, you know, some of the gender inclusivity stuff. And so feminism attempts, as, uh, as Poitras says, to systematically deband from the language patterns of thought that would be contrary to its program. And you think, yeah, that's true, and it might be some pluses. But let me ask you this. Is feminism the only one who is allowed to have that insight? Can't God have that insight that language shapes thought as well? And then you sit back and say, is there a pattern of thought in scripture reflected in its language? And the answer is yes. Adam is inclusive, Christ is inclusive. And so it sets up a pattern of thought where, whether we like it or not, humanity is actually included in the male. Now that pattern of thought, and you may not like it, but it's actually true, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. That pattern of thought is actually reflected in the words of Scripture. So it's actually quite a significant issue. So uh, while there's some, you know, tidying up to, to not import masculine terms when they're not, so everyone should be just everyone, not all men, and things like this, right? Context usually tells you whether these terms are. Uh, inclusive or not, and that should do it. But the pattern of thought should be uh, uh, um, uh, preserved. And also, it's the issue of letting scripture come to us from a different culture. How much do you obscure the cultural distance in the, with the aim of making it palatable to modern audiences? Because there's actually a heck of a lot there that's not palatable. And so I think we ought to let scripture come to us, say, from the first century and hear it coming to us from the first century and we receive it like that and then we work out what it means in the 21st century. So, so for all those reasons, uh, even though people promote inclusive language as a thought-for-thought -thought translation, you know, they'll say things like anthropos means humanity. Adelphoi means brothers and sisters. That's a reductionist understanding because actually anthropos includes humanity in anthropos. And it includes all in Adelphoi. And there are other things, the translation of son and son of man and things like that, which they deliberately try and remove. And pluralisation is significant. And we actually saw that in Hebrews too. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? It's actually important because the author of Hebrews says it's a prophecy, but you go back to inclusive language versions and they say, you know, uh, what's a human and a human being that you should care for them? You actually lose the connectivity in fulfilment. So I basically think it's an ideological principle uh, that shouldn't be there, and we have a great danger in our translations, and especially because they're the more accessible e English translations, of actually imposing Western gender confusion on other cultures. Uh, because what we're doing is obscuring, actually, the fact that humanity is gendered. It actually comes as he or she, and that's actually the way it 
goes. So I'm happy to... That's just introductory. As I say, uh, you can read uh, Fee, and he's all for it, but he's all for it in other contexts too. And you can read a very reasoned response in Poitras and Grudem, which I think uh, has more linguistic depth as well. Uh, so there. What should you look for in choosing a translation? It's horses for courses. You're studying the Bible with somebody from a non-English speaking background. And yes, you'll use the Good News or the NIV. For your own formal study, you should use a translation at the formal equivalence end because you don't want to make the translator the judge of meaning to hand over to him or her the role of interpreter any more than you need to. And that's actually very significant, even with ordinary translations. And so let me just give you an example from J.I. Packer. He's looking at James 2.1. Most modern translations, including the NASB, give us the phrase, Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. James, however, wrote, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, or the Lord of glory. The glory in the Old Testament was the bright light that signified God's presence to bless. And what James seems to be saying is that our Lord Jesus Christ is precisely that, God present with us through his spirit to bless us according to his revealed character and promises and purposes. But glorious fails to catch this. And he's talking about under-translation. And thought for thought is usually under-translation because 